America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day in the middle of Holy Week with Good Friday coming up tomorrow. And tomorrow night is also the first day of Passover where there are millions of people who will be celebrating a Seder sitting down for it. It is a great pleasure to uh, speak to somebody who I, I think through no plan of his own has become one of the more serious religious thinkers and about the limits of science and the limits of secularism. Uh, David Berlinski is the uh, author of the uh, new book, A Human Nature, and he's spent his entire career writing about mathematics and the sciences. But here in this new book, he turns the scientific uh, community's cherished skepticism back on itself, daring to ask and answer some uh, embarrassing questions. David, always a joy to speak with you. The pleasure is entirely mine. Thank you. Now, you're going back to Paris, I know, where you've lived for some time. And, I'm going uh, back tomorrow. Oh, well, and you should have safe journeys. Thank you very much. The, the question would be that in human nature, you particularly take issue with uh, Steven Pinker, a very celebrated psychologist at Harvard, who's been a guest on, on my show several times. And he did a, a book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which I know Bill Gates called one of the greatest books ever written. And that book made, a, made the case that because of science and secularism and the breakdown of old religious and nationalist hatreds, uh, the world was getting better and better and better, and violence was becoming less and less a factor. Uh, what's wrong with that argument? Well, the, the chief thing that's wrong with the argument is that the premises are untrue. <clears throat> I mean, I've done a, a lot of research uh, with respect to one particular claim, the ostensible 800-year decline in the homicide rate. Now, Pinker is not treating China, he's not treating Asia, India. It's principally a thesis about Europe and the United States. Uh, but it's a very powerful thesis. If true, it's a remarkable fact, unobserved as far as I can tell in the scholarly literature, that since roughly 1,300 homicide rates have been systematically and steadily decreasing. I went back to the medieval court records. And I looked at them very carefully, the original documents, not what historians said about them, and I discovered that the claim is simply untrue. It has no real tangible connection to reality. That's one of the things that's wrong. The other thing that's wrong with the book is that its estimation and assessment of the 20th century is woeful. Pinker treats the outstanding events of the 20th century the two great, enormous, costly world wars, 1914, 1918, 1939, 1945, but before that, uh, predecessors to the Second World War throughout, throughout Asia with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, for example. He treats them as statistical outliers, things that might be expected every now and then, and that's perfectly true if you treat the outbreak of wars as statistical 
physical phenomenon, sooner or later you're going to have catastrophic explosions. To my way of thinking, that's a very good reason not to treat the outbreak of war as a statistical phenomenon. And in addition, um, he has nothing to say about what I would say are the deepest currents of 20th century thought, the abysmal discovery of totalitarian politics and government, both in Nazi Germany, especially in the camps, and in Stalin's Russia, but not only there, in Mao's China, in Cambodia, and as a sinister current spreading through the world. That possibility that it is entirely feasible to organize a social system on the basis of terror, that's a new discovery in the 20th century, and to my mind, Pinker simply ignores it and ignores the implications of this discovery. That disqualifies his book, in my, in my view, uh, from making any kind of case about the better angels of our nature, speaking historically, speaking politically, and speaking socially. So, that, well, that, <laughs> that's certainly a good beginning. But uh, right now, part of what you're saying is you don't give up the idea of hope or progress. And I know that from having read your books. But uh, the uh, d- has it been a sobering wake-up call, do you think, this uh, invasion of Ukraine? For I, I think you have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to feel that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a sobering moment in world history. It was unexpected. It cannot be uh, squared with any uh, puerile thesis of weak history, um, the European idea that they have pioneered a new form of social existence which simply renounces violence. That's been the European project since uh, at least 30 years. The idea that the entire world is more or less bound necessarily to follow and lockstep the European model in which social democracy prevails, violence is pronounced, and multiculturalism is promoted. You just have to open your eyes. Russia has attacked the sovereign states in the most blood-drenched place in Central Europe. Surely that should have a salutary awakening effect on anyone who's looking at the news. Now, there's a powerful column today by Daniel Henninger about how the world had forgotten about the existence of evil, and Vladimir Putin, one-man show, has very helpfully reminded us. Uh, and, of course, there are examples of evil uh, all around us. Uh, do, you, do you remember, I know you do, the Kellogg-Briand uh, Pact of 1920? Sure. There were and a I think, number of treaties in the, in the 20s to those ends. Yeah, but the, the Kellogg-Briand Pact was great because it outlawed war. <laughs> sure. I'm all in favor of that, too. Yeah, and it just shows you that uh, sometimes diplomacy can triumph over logic. Uh, your book, The Devil's Delusion, is subtitled Atheism and Scientific Pretensions. Uh, isn't that the very essence of your problem with the Pinker book, is that it, it assumes that secularism, atheism, a uh, godless view of the world is beneficial and salutary? But uh, that's not what you're reading and your knowledge indicates. Well, I don't know quite whether it's my problem with the book. It's certainly Pinker's intellectual commitment, exactly as you put it, he believes it. Light, 
secularism, uh, the rejection of all theological interpretations of human life, and uh, an increasing path to material satisfaction will result in a world that is rosier, more cheerful, more productive, far less poverty, and that we should all be encouraged by these developments. I would be encouraged by those developments uh, saw them taking place. Now, I should say, Tinker is certainly right in pointing to certain dramatic improvements in human life. Life Poverty rate has, has decreased markedly. Far fewer people are living in abject misery than were living in abject misery a half a century ago. Medical facilities, medical treatments, clean water, sufficient food to eat, these are all remarkable human achievements. I, I don't for a minute want to suggest they have not taken place. But that is quite beside the real issue. The real issue, as I think Pinker understands, is violent, homicide, war, atrocity. We will get back to more with David Berlinski. His most recent book, Human Nature, uh, he uh, is visiting the United States, his home country, his home, from his other home in Paris. We will be right back with the one, the only, David Berlinski, 1-800-955-1776. Portions of The Michael Medved Show are brought to you in part by The Discovery and And on The Michael Medved Show, back uh, for a few minutes more with uh, David Berlinski, a mathematician, uh, art artistic uh, commentator, and analyst, uh, a philosopher, and uh, raconteur, and all-around fascinating guy. He's also a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute. And uh, his most recent books, The Devil's Delusion and Human Nature. And when it comes to human nature, do you, do you believe uh, or have sympathy at all with the, uh, the idea that is put forward often by many secular-minded people that the religious impulse that seems to be a, almost a timeless universal aspect of human nature is actually primitive and illogical and uh, contradicts any exercise of rational logic thought. Uh, your view on the idea that the entire uh, God hypothesis that our mutual friend Steve Meyer writes about that the uh, God hypothesis is uh, just primitive foolishness. Does that uh, idea have some resonance deserving of respect? Not from me. <laughs> you surely knew that I was going to offer that answer. Yeah, that was called a setup. It's a soft. <laughs> in, in many respects, I wish I could say, sure, it's a it's, uh, manifestation of the primitive, say, the reptilian brain. It has no bearing on reality. Sophisticated people are perfectly capable of dispensing with that hypothesis. And I think I speak for many people. <coughs> Excuse me. Were it true, it would make life much easier. We could just say, we'll study the sciences, and that's enough. 
that satisfies all of our emotional and intellectual needs. It just doesn't seem to be true. It's not true in any rational sense. There is no one, even the most devoted and committed secularists, who, when the dark night of the soul steals over their imagination, is content to say, well, they're the sciences and that's it. That just doesn't reflect my understanding of reality. I don't think it really, truly, deeply reflects anyone's understanding of reality. One of the uh, questions that uh, goes along with that is, uh, okay, our understanding of reality, how did reality begin, where did we come from? The scientific community seems to be nearly unanimous now in suggesting that um, that reality began, the universe began, with uh, what people call the Big Bang. And it began suddenly and out of nowhere and uh, then here we are a few years later a few billion years later and uh, you have uh, Mozart and Vladimir Putin on two different sides of the issue and uh, and it it all just uh, developed is the Big Bang theory uh, somehow work well with the idea of scientific atheism no, I don't think it works particularly well, and I think physicists in the nineteen, well, in the nineteen thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties were well aware that an eternally existing universe. Einstein certainly believed that offered the physical imagination and certainly the secular imagination a sense of comfort that the Big Bang does not provide, because the Big Bang points to an origin of space and time some 13.5 or 14 billion years in the past, and an origin of space and time inevitably leads to the question which we cannot escape. Huh? How'd that happen? Now, obviously, if you accept the, the view that uh, space and time were created in the Big Bang, it's not very easy to point to a time before time was created. It's possible speculate along those lines, but you'll immediately enmesh yourself in contradiction. Let that go. The fact is something happened. We can trace the origin of that something back 13.5 or 14 billion years ago, but to say, well, that's it. That's the answer to every single metaphysical, theological, or psychological question we might pose about the world we find ourselves in, that's just childish. That's not enough. That's no answer. So I think there is an understanding in the physics community that there's a very great mystery embedded in the doctrine of the Big Bang. It's a superb name, by the way. Fred Hoyle called it the Big Bang. I think it's a stroke of genius is the name. Because it does restore cosmology to its ancestral roots, some form of sexual energy, and that shouldn't be denied. There's something primitive about, primitive about the idea of a Big Bang, cosmic explosion. But no, I don't think the standard model of cosmology even begins to answer any of the deepest questions we might pose. Why is that thing there? We don't know. We don't. Well, let know. me ask you. Let me ask you about another thing, very famous thing that is right in the neighborhood you live in, in Paris, which is Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, you uh, you were there the night the cathedral burned. And uh, what what's your 
attitude, your acceptance, enthusiasm level about the current plans to rebuild the Great Cathedral? Well, right now, the current plans are okay. They, they, they have stabilized the cathedral, which was very much in doubt for a long time. And they're doing exquisite renovations. They are going to restore almost all the physical aspects of the cathedral to the state they were before the fire. You've got to imagine some of the unbelievably stupid plans that were being floated about. One group of architects wanted to put a swimming pool on top. But those <laughs> no, no were... really? Oh, yeah. No, th- that, that, wasn't a, <laughs> uh, that wasn't a jocular remark. I've seen the plans. Huge, big swimming pool on top of Notre Dame. Sure, be great for me. I live a block away. Just trot right over, have a swim, and come, and come out again. But um, how the interior of the cathedral is going to be arranged, how it's going to be presented, that remains uh, a little more parlous. There, there is a, a movement of folks, and with a lot of support from the French government, to make the cathedral a kind of uh, ecumenical, interdisciplinary, multicultural institution, uh, welcoming um, all manner of diversity to the interior, instead of what it is, was, and should be, that is, it's essentially a Catholic institution. And uh, I've seen some of the plans. I, I find them curious and repugnant at the same time. Curious because there is something sympathetic about trying to expand the reach of the cathedral as a great monument of Western architecture, trying to entice more and more people to enter it, not simply as tourists, but to appreciate the role of the cathedral in the development of Western history. There's something attractive about that. And there's something repugnant about denying the essentially liturgical and theological function of the cathedral as a great edifice of Catholic thought. Not Jewish thought, not Muslim, not Islam, not Hindu, not Buddhist. Catholic thought. And I appreciate your Catholic view, Catholic in the sense of universal, uh, and standing up for universal truth. Uh, Dr. David Berlinski, his most recent book, Human Nature, uh, good travels to you and uh, all best wishes for the season. We will be right back. Michael Medved show. Part of the uh, return to uh, normalcy that I think many Americans crave was actually achieved uh, at least a little bit with the uh, baseball season getting started. I mean, I can't say I'm happy with the beginning of the baseball season where the Mariners have in the first six games uh, underperformed. <laughs> They've lost four of them. But uh, is still sports is a an element of life that uh, that provides joy, distraction, even sometimes some object lessons, and it also provides grounds for all kinds of controversy. There is a new series of ads that they're using, apparently just saturation kind of exposure on the. Uh, uh, the NCAA basketball championships, the March Madness, which has gone on to April, of course, but uh, this is uh, this has been a very, very 
big presence. It's ads from Adidas. And uh, the uh, article from Yahoo says Adidas is facing backlash and the threat of boycotts in response to its latest impossible is nothing campaign honoring women in sports. The sportswear brand uh, debuted the I'm it's impossible. It's written impossible, but with a, a little uh, uh, apostrophe there. So it's I'm possible. Get it? It's not impossible. I'm possible. And, of course, the the big controversial aspect about it is it features a volleyball player uh, from Brazil who is, uh, and she's the one who was first mentioned in the list of participants, and the volleyball player from Brazil is named Tiffany Abreu, and she is a transgendered woman. And the uh, ad uh, sounds uh, like this. Listen. It's impossible to take hold of the world spotlight overnight, create your own uniform, be a cover model, a powerful athlete, or compete as a trans woman. Impossible? No. I'm possible. Yeah, and, and Jeremy Steiner, pride of Hillsdale College, makes a very good point. They start off, it's impossible. And if some of the imagery here, instead of the slow motion display flashing back and forth to these various uh, women that they feature, if uh, they included some uh, cisgendered women women uh, trying to play against the transgendered guy who is now a woman, uh, because that's impossible. That's that's not a possible or fair or reasonable competition. I uh, I think what's so bizarre about this and what strikes people so strongly is the idea that they're preaching in this ad to get you to buy their shoes. How many people, anybody out there who who feels like you're more likely to go buy Adidas? footwear uh, based upon this ad that features a uh, transgendered volleyball player, Tiffany Abreu. Uh, the, uh, there are others in these ads. And again, the, the sort of solemnity of it, they also include, as, a, as an athlete, someone who has no identification as an athlete, Jung uh, Ho-yeon, is a South Korean model and actress. She began her career as a freelance model in 2010, walking in Seoul Fashion Week, which is a huge athletic endeavor. Uh, and uh, for two years, it sounded like it took her a while to get to her destination. Uh, in 2013, she competed on the fourth season of Korea's Next Top Model and placed as a runner-up. Now, does that count as an athletic endeavor? Uh, this is what her uh, more intimate profile sounded like. Listen. I am Ho Young. I took hold of the world spotlight overnight. I made it there because I chose my path and trained for it. I worked to make my dreams a reality. I'm not afraid to show the world who I am 
My story is not impossible because I'm possible. No, your story is not impossible because you live in South Korea. If you lived in North Korea, it is very unlikely that you would ever be able to afford any footwear from Adidas, let alone the uh, the the much uh, very different uh, kind of footwear that would be featured in your profession as a top model. And uh, then there is more. There's a woman named Jessamine Stanley, and you wonder what athletic endeavor is she in? She's... Okay, she, she um, how do you put it? Uh, Jer Jeremy, what's the right way to say this? Uh, she's large and in charge. Uh, she is a, a, a person of size. She's obese. And what is her great athletic achievement? Her great athletic achievement is, is she is a wellness warrior and a yoga practitioner. And good for her, but... The, someone is holding, and by the way, in the, the photograph of her, she's barefoot. There's nothing Adidas about her. She is an advocate for body positivity, and uh, Jessamine San Stanley sounds like this. I'm Jessamine Stanley. I've been told I don't look like an athlete. Well, they are dead wrong. My body is flexible and powerful. I've realized the more I show of it, the more strength I give to others. So who's gonna tell me I'm not an athlete? My story is not impossible because I'm possible. Okay, um, sounds like a very charismatic, etc., etc. But again, if you're a wellness warrior, uh, part of is there any contradiction at all when, uh, for instance, uh, there are pieces, just a piece from Axios, uh, picked at random, well, not quite, why it matters obesity and related diseases like diabetes were closely linked with a far higher risk of serious illness and death from COVID. This was particularly true among older adults, communities of color and disadvantaged communities, et cetera, et cetera. A, this is a most bizarre ad campaign, and the reaction to it has been extremely hostile. They say that uh, we aim to drive further visibility to this message during March Madness, inspiring the next generation of student athletes to continue to push boundaries for a more equal and inclusive community of sport. Uh, critics have taken to the brand's social media pages to express disappointment in the message, most notably the inclusion of transgender Brazilian athlete Abreu, amid heated debates about trans athletes. Impossible for me to ever buy another Adidas product, one person responded on Twitter. That should have been our tweet of the day. I'm buying a different brand. Another uh, tweeted, now I'm muting you. I suggest that all women do the same and also boycott your products. Others called the brand Fake Woke and suggested that the 30-second commercial destroyed the company. Now, it's gotten a certain amount of attention, but again, in in terms of the impact of a commercial, the idea that someone would see these very highly produced, sort of striking-looking things dealing with um, these very demanding athletic pursuits like yoga and modeling, 
uh, and not to mention volleyball. But uh, uh, this is another frontier in our culture. What about culture war, uh, wars and, um, and changing names of Indian-named places? We'll get to that front coming up on the Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, I mentioned uh, uh, yesterday that uh, there is an ongoing campaign. It is uh, strongly supported by our Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, who is the first uh, Native American and registered tribal member to uh, head uh, the Department of the Interior, which is responsible, among many other things, uh, to with for the um, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs and uh, B Indian Health Service and uh, relations, basically, with the uh, tribal nations, and they are considered to be nations with which we live. And um, there's a, a commentary that I think is very interesting here. And it is amazing to me that this is generating controversy, but everything in America generates controversy. It's based upon the word squaw. And yes, I think I can still say squaw, despite the fact that in some of the articles about this, they they treat it like the N-word, or basically with some dashes so that you shouldn't even pronounce the word. Apparently, it was originally a derogatory term, but for most Americans, I don't think until the day before yesterday, most Americans realized that. There's a column by Danny Westneed in uh, Seattle Times, and it's an interesting column. He says, the drive to expunge the derogatory term squaw from some of our creeks, lakes, and rivers, and buttes, is going as well as you might expect in a country as riven about its history as this one, which is to say it's a brand new front in the culture wars. And one commenter to the Federal Department of the Interior, which is leading the change, uh, he wrote in, I suppose if you had it your way, you would remove every bit of our great history and soon would not even be called America. Now, again, Squaw and objecting to the word squaw as uh, an, a name. And who knew about this? I mean, w one of the things that was amazing, I did not realize that Washington State, uh, where I am very proud to live, it has uh, 16 place names that are proposed for renaming by the Interior Department. The difficulty is once you have designated and you've picked out all these various squaw places, uh, Squaw Creek and Squaw Mountain and Squaw uh, Lake and, and all of these various places, uh, then how do you decide on a new name? Uh, another, there are 18, I said 16, there are actually 18. There are 666 place names across the nation, including 18 in Washington State. And a... Um, uh, there was one of the protests that was written in to the Interior Department said, 
We will see you at the polls come November when the red wave will once again make America great again. And really, of all the things to be upset over, it would be losing the name Squaw. Is this really worth going, you'll pardon the expression, on the warpath for? I, it, it, I don't really see it on either side, frankly. But um, Wesney writes, I suppose it was predictable that ridding the landscape of a disparaging term would get sucked into a bigger fight about whether our history should delve deeply into or even acknowledge the nation's obvious sins. And again, does every place that is named geographically with the word squaw, is that an indication of some kind of sin or disrespect? A uh, reflexive rallying on behalf of the slur there's nothing wrong with the word squaw, another of the hundreds of commenters wrote to the government. All you're trying to do is to inflame and divide before the next election. Our poor state uh, committee on geographic names is a little-known group inclined more to cartographic arguments than to cultural ones. It found itself under fire from all sides. Quote, it should remain up to indigenous people to decide for ourselves what is or is not offensive, not pundits, talking heads, amateur journalists, or white folks in general. So said a member of the Nez Perce tribe. Uh, another member of the Colville tribe wrote in, my fear is that this is another act of white saviorism. And uh, Interior set up a, a super tight timetable, possibly due to fears about the uh, above-mentioned uh, predicted red political wave rendering it all moot. And it fashioned a bewildering rubric for renaming all these places quickly, one with unintended consequences, a task force, naturally, identified the closest geographic features to the ones named Squaw, and then suggested simply replacing that derogatory modifier with one of the nearby root names. For example, Squaw Island uh, down in the Columbia River is adjacent to G Creek. So it could be quickly and presumably painlessly renamed G Island. It's not so simple, however, out at uh, Mount Rainier National Park. They have a Squaw Lake and one nearby feature is that the task force identified for a root name is a meadow called Indian Henry's Hunting Ground. <laughs> now, what's the story with Indian Henry's Hunting Ground? Uh, so the lake could then become Indian Henry's Hunting Ground Lake, which uh, doesn't make a great deal of sense and might also be racist. Indian Henry, the real Indian Henry, was a native farmer and mountain guide in the 1800s whose real name approximated Sotolik, according to the Mount Rainier Park tourist site. The story goes that uh, a white postal carrier, Henry Windsor, was put off pronouncing this name, the original name in the Indian language, and then allegedly said, that's no name, your name. It is, your name now is Indian Henry. Okay, this goes on, but the idea that, that we have to fight over something as minor 
as um, giving a, a different name for a name that some tribal members and apparently a great many Native Americans and others find offensive. Okay, I, I don't think we, we need to go all the way for squaw. And then there's a, a, an equal item of uh, some controversy, a controversy involving a preschool and a preschool teacher who uh, is very devoted to and I say her even though she identifies as non-binary her name is as according to her own announcement uh, she explains her practice of uh, using different pronoun twins pins to pin on her little four-year-old charges to give them the right broad perspective on gender identity. Uh, listen. Hi, my name's As and I'm a preschool teacher. So my classroom celebrates diversity. It's probably my favorite thing to teach. We usually use kids' books to talk about this kind of thing. Recently we started wearing pronoun pins and the kids get to pick a new pronoun pin every day. We have some that pick like she, her every single day and we have some that change it up. So diversity is really important in my class. So I recently realized that there's a whole lot of really amazing figureheads and people to look up to in this world who aren't white or straight or male or have what have you. And that we should learn a little bit more about these people. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, does that sound like a good program for a, uh, a preschool? And uh, I, I, again, it's, it's tough enough. Kids are just coming to terms with language, and pronouns are tough anyway. You got, could this create a little bit uh, more confusion than inspiration? And I love the fact that uh, she believes that the only people to be getting attention are people who are white and male and straight. And again, how do you know that they're really male? And what pronouns might they have preferred if uh, they were given the choice starting in preschool? Right now, uh, Democrats have a choice. And the, the choice is either change or die. I don't mean literally die, but I mean suffer a really overwhelming political defeat. So what about the Democratic plans to change things up? Uh, we will get to that. We will also get to more revelations about the shooter in the New York subway. We now understand how he was able to live drifting from place to place with his morbid plots. We will get to that and more in this greatest